I invite you to please stand with me as we read the Word of God together. And would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Pray with me this morning. Our Father in heaven, it is indeed our sacred privilege to be able to address you as our Father and our, our God. It is our privilege to be able to approach you and to be welcomed. We come not in our own name or in our own righteousness. We come to you with a righteousness that is alien to us but a righteousness that is given to us by your own grace and through faith in your own Son. Father, we thank you that while we are sinners, you have accepted us in the Beloved, in your Son, where there is abundant redemption. And where there is loving kindness. Father, we recognize that you are the judge of all the earth. And we also recognize that you are a God of mercy. That with you there is forgiveness. And as we are forgiven of our sins because of Christ... We do not see this as a license to sin more, but rather we fear you. Father, we thank you for the generosity of your grace, the generosity of your mercy. We thank you that in spite of the fact that you have every right to damn us for our sins, you have chosen another way. You have chosen the way of redemption. And Father, as your beloved people, as we gather here together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we confess that we have a common hope, a common hope in Christ. And we further confess that in your word, do we hope? We thank you that you are a revealing God. That you have revealed yourself in your creation. And that you have further revealed yourself in your word. Father, we consider your word to be a treasure. It is sweeter to our taste than honey... It is more valuable to us than much fine gold. 
Father, your word is our food, it is our nourishment, it is medicine to our souls. And Father, as we wait upon you this morning, as we entrust ourselves to you afresh this morning, we surrender our entire lives to you. We submit our thoughts, our affections. We submit our plans, our families, our money. The entirety of our lives we submit to you and to your sovereign authority. And we pray that you would be pleased to use us any way that you would choose in this life. We pray that you would enable us to bear much fruit for your glory. Father, as we wait upon you, I pray that you would provide encouragement to every heart, that you would provide the necessary grace that we need to endure, to endure the trials of this life. Thank you, O oh Lord, that with you there is loving kindness and that with you there is abundant redemption. We thank you that we have the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ by which we stand and by which we approach you with confidence. Minister to your people, O oh God. Minister to every heart. Do that which only you can do within the soul. Be honored in our midst, and not only here, but everywhere your people gather on this Lord's Day, all around the globe. We pray that your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, that he would be honored, that he would be exalted, that he would be lifted up and praised and adored by us. And we pray this in his name. And for his sake, amen. Amen. You may be. In John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian and Hopeful journey down the narrow road together, they cross the plain of ease where they walked with freedom and contentment. From there they came to a happy river, which on either side was a beautiful meadow. While there they sang and rejoiced in the goodness of God. But shortly thereafter, on their way to the delectable mountains, they deviated from the narrow road at Bypath Meadow, and they fell asleep near an old castle called Doubting Castle, which was owned by giant despair. It was the habit of giant despair to rise early in the morning and to inspect his grounds. And on this particular morning, giant despair found Christian and hopeful sleeping on his land. The two pilgrims were then captured by giant despair and thrown into a dark dungeon in Doubting Castle, where they lay from Wednesday through Saturday night without food, without water, and without light. Giant Despair's wife's name was Gloom, and she advised her husband to beat the two pilgrims unmercifully, which she did. The next evening, Giant Despair returned to the dungeon in a very ugly mood and attempted to persuade the two pilgrims to escape their misery by taking their own lives. And in that time of despair, Christian said this to Hopeful, Brother Hopeful, what shall we do? The life we now have is extremely wretched. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live like this for a time, then starve to death, or be beaten to death by this brutal man, or to die now and get out of it. Surely the grave is to be desired rather than this dungeon. Do you understand what Christian is saying there? He is suggesting the possibility of suicide. 
Hopeful replied, well, of course, our present condition is intolerable. And death would be far better to me than to spend the rest of my days in this place, whether they be many or few. But let us consider that the Lord of the country to which we are going has said, Thou shalt do no murder. Not only are we forbidden to kill another person, much more are we forbidden to kill ourselves. Let me interject at this point in the story and say very plainly to you that suicide is a real temptation that Christians can face. Given the right circumstances and given the right conditions in life, no Christian is immune from thoughts of suicide. Why do you suppose John Bunyan included this scene in Pilgrim's Progress? Where was John Bunyan when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress? He was in jail for a second time, a second time. In the year 1660, John Bunyan was arrested for preaching without being licensed by the Church of England. John Bunyan was a Baptist, he was a nonconformist, and all he needed to do to be released from jail was to agree to stop preaching. Bunyan said, if I am free today, I will preach tomorrow. He refused to stop preaching the gospel. So he spent the next 12 and a half years of his life in jail from 1660 to 1672. And if you think this season of his life was one that was easy, I direct your attention to the bulletin, to the first quote that we have there for you from John Bunyan. And he describes that 12 and a half years of his life in this way, the parting with my wife and poor children hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under. He had a blind daughter would break my heart to pieces. I don't think he could express the misery more vividly than that. When Bunyan was released from prison in 1672, his freedom was short-lived because he was again arrested and imprisoned in 1675, and during the second imprisonment is when he began to write The Pilgrim's Progress. As a man who suffered greatly in his own life, John Bunyan understood that suicide is a real temptation that Christians can face. And therefore, he included it in Pilgrim's Progress as a help for those who travel down the narrow way. Now, with that said, listen to what I say now very carefully. Suicide may be a real temptation. But it is never an option. Never. Suicide is a great sin. It is self-murder. It is to destroy a human being made in the image of God. And when it involves a Christian, it is to destroy a human being that is the temple of God. What is more, it is the most selfish thing that a person could ever do. People who commit suicide do so to escape personal pain, but they do so at an extraordinary cost to their loved ones. The pain they leave behind is unspeakable pain. With that said, there are godly people in the Bible who came to the place in their suffering where they wanted to die like Job and Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah. These men wanted to die. In fact, Moses and Elijah even prayed to God that he would take their life. But as severe as their suffering was, they refused, they refused to commit suicide recognizing that this is not an option. If anyone ever had a justification for suicide, it was Job. And yet that is not the decision that he made. 
Now back to our story. What happened to Christian and Hopeful in that doubting castle? Christian proposed a plan of suicide to escape their misery. Hopeful quickly dismissed any such idea, and then the story picks up with this. About midnight Saturday night, Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued until almost break of day. Then Christian suddenly broke out in amazement. What a fool! What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. And then he said this, I have a key in my bosom called promise, which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. I love that line. I have a key in my bosom called promise, which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. So Christian took that key of promise. He unlocked that dungeon door, and the two pilgrims escaped from giant despair. Beloved, this story vividly illustrates the Christian life. There are times in your life when you become captured, if you will, by giant despair, and you are imprisoned in Doubting Castle. And while you are there, you are beaten unmercifully by giant despair. You are tortured by your own dark thoughts and by your own dark emotions. And sometimes the misery and the despair can be so great that the temptation to end your life becomes very real. But you must always remember that when you are overcome with spiritual depression, as a Christian... You have in your possession the key of promise. And this key will unlock any door in Doubting Castle. And it will allow you to escape. So never forget in your times and in your seasons of depression, there is a way out. There is a way of escape through the key of promise. That is the promises of God to you. In his holy word. In this series, we have considered two main points so far. In our first point, we have considered Roman numeral one on your bulletin insert the reality of spiritual depression. And under this point, we have learned that spiritual depression is a reality for God's people, even the most godly of people like Job and Moses and King David and Elijah and Jeremiah, the Apostle Paul, David Brainerd, Adoniram Judson, Charles Spurgeon, Arthur Pink, and many others. In our message last week, we considered a second point, Roman numeral two in our outline, the causes of spiritual depression. And under this point, we learned that the conventional psychiatric approach is to label depression as a disease that is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. And the best treatment for depression is psychiatric medication, in other words, antidepressants. As we stated, depression is not a disease. The notion that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain is only a theory, a very shaky one at that, and antidepressants do not, they cannot cure depression. Furthermore, we said antidepressants are dangerous. They have very serious side effects. At best, they may be able to treat some of the symptoms of depression, but they cannot deal with the root cause of depression. As a rebuttal to this conventional model, we said that depression is a normal experience in a fallen world. It is normal to feel sad. It is normal to grieve. It is normal to suffer from depression at times. It is not a sickness. It is not a disease. We further said that there are at least four contributing factors to depression. Number one, physical and health problems can lead to depression. Number two, painful circumstances in life can lead to depression. Number three, bitterness over wrong suffered can lead to depression. And then finally, number four, personal sin can lead to depression. 
That brings us now to our third point. Roman numeral three in our outline, the remedy for spiritual depression. As the title of this series suggests, the remedy for spiritual depression is Christian hope. We are titling this series, The Hope of God, Overcoming Spiritual Darkness. And this is the great truth that we will develop in the remainder of this series, namely the hope of God. Now, as we think about the remedy for spiritual depression being Christian hope, we need to begin with a definition of hope from a biblical perspective. And so you'll see in our outline we have some subpoints beginning with letter A, the meaning of Christian hope. And so I ask you, what is hope? What is the meaning of hope? What is the definition of hope? According to one dictionary, hope is to want something to happen. And I emphasize want. It is to want something to happen. This is the dictionary definition. Let me give you some examples. I am a sports fan. My favorite baseball team is the Houston Astros. And I can tell you that I hope they win the World Series this year. They have never won the World Series. I hope this is their year. To give you another example, sometimes my kids say to me, I hope we have pizza for dinner tonight. They say that on a fairly regular basis. To give you a more serious example, I received a phone call this week from a friend who informed me that he possibly might have leukemia. There are more tests that need to be run to find out for sure, but he is now saying, I hope that I do not have leukemia. I hope that the tests come back favorable to me from the doctor. This is, of course, what he wants to happen. We are all very familiar with this usage of the word hope. When we say we hope for something, we are essentially expressing a wish. This is something that we wish for. This is something that we want. And very importantly, when hope is used this way, the one thing that it lacks is certainty. No certainty. There is no certainty that my or your favorite baseball team will win the World Series this year or ever. There is no certainty that your test results will come back favorable. There is no doubt we desire these things, we wish for these things, we want these things, but we have no certainty of their outcome. And so the common meaning of the word hope is that it is a desire, it is a wish, it is something that we want something good that we want to happen in the future. But again, there is no certainty that it will occur. It's just a wish, just a want. Now, enter onto the stage Christian hope, or as I like to call it, gospel hope. When the Bible speaks about hope, it refers to a confident expectation, not a mere wish. It is not something that you merely wish will happen. It is something that will certainly happen without fail. On your bulletin, there is a quote from John Blanchard who says, Hope is biblical shorthand for unconditional certainty. And he's right. It's rooted and founded in certainty. And so Christian hope is the certainty that something good will happen in the future. It is not something that is going to possibly happen in the future. It is something that will certainly happen in the future. Looking at the quote from John Piper, he says, Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. And so Christian hope is not crossing your fingers and hoping for the best, as it were. It is having absolute certainty that something good will, in fact, happen in the future. One New Testament lexicon defines the word hope as an expected 
an awaited good. It is a good that we expect. It is a good that we await. And again, referring you to the bulletin, Peter Anderson says, hope is faith in the future tense. That is a beautiful picture. It is faith in the future tense. Now, with that definition in mind, that idea of certainty, we move on to letter B, the foundation of Christian hope. If hope is the expectation and the certainty of something good in the future, what gives us this certainty? What is the basis of our confidence? What is the foundation of our hope? The answer is simple. It is the gospel. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the sure foundation of our hope. And hence, Christian hope is gospel hope. The heart of the gospel is the doctrine of justification. And at the heart of justification is the concept of imputation. To impute is to credit someone with something that they have not earned. And in the gospel, imputation goes in two directions. It goes in two opposite directions. It is double imputation. On the cross, the sins of everyone who would ever believe in Jesus were imputed to him. As a Christian, your sins were imputed to Jesus. They were credited to Jesus. They were given to him, and he was charged with them. And what is more, he was punished in your place as if he had committed all of your sins when, in fact, he was innocent and righteous. This is the imputation of your sin to Jesus. But imputation also goes in the opposite direction from Jesus to you, the believing sinner. At the moment you trust in Christ alone as your Lord and as your Savior, you are justified by faith, the Bible says, especially in Romans and Galatians. That is to say, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. It is credited to you by faith in Jesus. And so your sin goes to Jesus, and his righteousness comes to you. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. This is the gospel. This is a hill that everyone in this room should be willing to die on. In the courtroom of heaven... As a believer, you are now declared forgiven of all of your sins because of the suffering and the death of Jesus in your place. And what is more, you are also declared righteous in the sight of the holy God, not because you are righteous, but because an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, has been given to you by grace, and that is the righteousness from Jesus and his life. And so it is critical to recognize, as we understand the gospel, not only did Jesus die for you, he lived for you. He lived a perfectly righteous life and a perfectly obedient life. He fulfilled the law of God in your stead. And why did he do this? So that he could, by grace and through faith, give you his own righteousness which is the righteousness that God requires of you that you are unable to achieve. Perhaps the clearest single verse in the Bible on double imputation is 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Double imputation. Your sin goes to Jesus, it is imputed to Jesus, and then his righteousness is imputed to you by faith. If you'll look once again at the bulletin at the next quote from John Piper, he says this, says it so well, faith unites us to Christ, 
And in Christ, we have an alien righteousness. It is God's righteousness in Christ, or you can say it is Christ's righteousness. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. This is the doctrine of justification. This is the Christian gospel. As you know, the theme of our VBS last week was Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. It is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And since we focused on Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, one of our memory verses during the week was Romans 1.16. Open your Bibles to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16 and 17 was life-changing for Luther. In fact, we could even say that this is the text that launched the Reformation, Romans 1.16 and 17. In the year 1511, Luther moved to Wittenberg, Germany, where he earned his Doctor of Divinity degree at the University of Wittenberg, and then he became a professor of biblical literature at the University of Wittenberg, but amazingly, he did not yet understand the gospel. Imagine having a doctorate in Bible, a doctorate in theology, and teaching the Bible and teaching theology, and yet not being familiar and understanding clearly the gospel. At this point in his life, Luther still believed that a person is justified in the sight of God by his own good works through the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church. That was his hope. That was his confidence. He lectured on the book of Psalms from 1513 to 1515, and then he moved on to lecture through the book of Romans. And when he came to Romans 1, 16 and 17, his life was profoundly changed. This is when he came to understand the gospel for the very first time in his life. Let me read Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now I ask you, look at verse 17, and what is the righteousness of God? What does Paul mean by that? As you think about the answer to that question, look at the bulletin at the quotes from Luther. They're long quotes, but they're so good. I couldn't resist. In the first quote, Luther says, I had indeed been captivated with an extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. So do I. I concur. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. So he comes to this verse that I just read for you, and it's like he hits a wall. He says, for I hated that word, righteousness of God. That is not a typo. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. And so what is the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17? For Luther, he initially understood it to be, listen, a threat from God. This is a verse about judgment. In the mind of Luther, the gospel is not good news. It is a promise of judgment, of punishment. This isn't mercy in the mind of Luther. He continues in the next quote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, he was an impeccable monk, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Isn't that incredible? He has a doctorate in theology. He's teaching the Bible. And he says in this quote, he admits 
that he hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel, and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. What do you want, Paul, of me? In Romans 1.17. And he took his staff, as it were, and he beat that rock, and he beat that rock, and he beat that rock, until the God-intended meaning gushed out. He says in that next and final quote from Luther, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And notice the last sentence. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. He went from hating God as a Bible professor to loving God. He had entered through the gates of paradise as God gave him a true understanding of the gospel. And so what is the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17? It is not a threat. It is not the righteousness of God whereby he punishes the unrighteous sinner. Instead, it is the free gift of God's grace that he gives to the sinner who believes in Jesus. It is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ received by faith. Now, at this point, you may be wondering in your mind, have we really veered off the path of spiritual depression? What does the doctrine of justification have to do with the remedy for spiritual depression? My answer, it has everything to do with it. Absolutely everything. This is the very foundation of our Christian hope. Without this, we have no hope. And our Christian hope is the remedy to our spiritual depression. The doctrine of justification has massive implications for spiritual depression. When people suffer depression, they feel a myriad of things. They feel alone. They can feel as if they have no purpose in life. They can feel as if they have no personal identity. They can feel as if they are not accepted. They can feel as if they are not loved or cared for. They can feel a great sense of guilt and shame. They can feel a deep sense of insecurity. They can feel hopeless. Beloved, do you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to every one of those things? Because of the gospel, and if you look at the second handout in the bulletin, we have a list of things. Because of the gospel, number one, you are never alone in Christ. As a Christian, this is not anything new to you, but it is profoundly overwhelming. As a Christian, God is with you. He is with you. God lives inside of you. 
He has made you to be his temple, his dwelling place. God is with you and he is for you. He is not against you. As we stay in the book of Romans, would you turn over to Romans chapter 8 in verse 31. This is perhaps the highest point in all of Scripture when Paul gets to these questions that he raises in view of the gospel. He says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Listen, God is for you. He is not against you. Psalm 23, verse 4, the most famous psalm in all of the Psalter Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In your depression, you may feel like you are alone, but you are never alone. God is with you. God is in you. And God is the antidote to your fears, the antidote to your anxiety, the antidote to your pain, the antidote to your loneliness. This week I listened to the hymn, Be Still My Soul. We're going to sing it this morning as our closing hymn. And it was a deeply moving time of worship for me as I was reminded of this wonderful lyric. Here is the first stanza, Be Still My Soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. And so number one, because of the gospel... You are never alone in Christ. Number two, because of the gospel, you have identity in Christ. As a Christian, your identity is not determined by what you do. It is not determined by your skills. It is not determined by your job. It is not determined by the place and extent of your education. It is not determined by your level of income. It is not determined by the volume of your possessions or by what you look like, your identity is found in Christ, in Jesus Christ. As a Christian, you now belong to God. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. By faith, you are united to Christ. You have every spiritual blessing that God has to give in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God with millions of brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. In Romans 8, Paul develops this. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And so because of the gospel, you have identity in Jesus Christ. And then number three, because of the gospel, you are accepted and forgiven in Christ. As a Christian, when you struggle with the guilt and shame of your own sin, when you are condemned or tempted to condemn yourself, as we are prone to do, remember that Jesus Christ has already been condemned in your place. At the cross, Jesus bore all of your guilt, all of your sin, all of your shame, and he suffered the punishment that you deserve on the cross. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Rick read earlier in Romans 8.3, the last part of the verse, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, God the Father condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. And then going on a little bit further, 
In Romans 8, look at verse 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. In Jesus, you have peace with God. You don't have to make God accept you by your efforts and by your good works because you are already accepted by God in the beloved in Christ. And so now you can enjoy and rest in God's forgiveness of you and his acceptance of you by grace. Number four, because of the gospel, you are loved and cared for in Christ. As a Christian, you are loved with an everlasting love that will never let you go. Romans 8.32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And then down to verse 35, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Will any of these things separate you from the love of God that is in Christ? Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of man is fickle, but the love of God is secure. The love of God is permanent. There is a security that we have in the permanency of God's love. And so you have the assurance from God. You have the promises of God in his word that he will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come, and that you come, I will never cast them out. John six thirty seven. God, therefore, is forever committed to loving you and caring for you. You are loved by God more than you are loved by anyone else. You are cared for by God more than you are cared for by anyone else. And this is because of the gospel. Number five, because of the gospel, you have purpose in Christ. As a Christian, you have purpose and meaning in your life. Your purpose is to live a life of worship unto God and to live for the glory of God, which brings highest possible joy. In Romans 11, the last verse of that great chapter, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever, amen. That is the aim of our life, that is the goal of our life, is the glory of God in everything that we do. And then Paul follows that great statement on the glory of God with Romans 12:1. I urge you, brethren, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so the aim and purpose of your life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then finally, number six, because of the gospel, you have hope in Christ. As a Christian, you have hope. You have the certainty of good in your future. You have the certainty that something good will take place in your future. You can look at the future and you can smile and you can rest because of God's promises of good to you in the future. We are out of time for now, but we will expand this particular point in our next message. As we conclude, beloved, the gospel applies to depression like nothing else can. Like nothing else can. Because of the gospel, you are never alone. 
Because of the gospel, you have identity. Because of the gospel, you have forgiveness from your guilt and from your shame. Because of the gospel, you have peace. Because of the gospel, you are accepted. You are loved. You are cared for. Because of the gospel, you have security. You have purpose and meaning in your life. And you have hope for a good future. And so the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the very foundation, the sure foundation of our Christian hope. Our Father, we thank you for all of these things, all of these truths, all of these realities, all of these promises, all of these assurances that you have given to us by grace in your Son, the Lord Jesus Father, we recognize that it is normal to suffer in this life. It is normal to feel sad and to grieve and to suffer depression at times and in seasons of our life. But we also recognize that when we go through those things, that there is a hope that you provide that transcends everything else. We thank you that we are not alone. We thank you that you are with us, that you are for us. We thank you that you have accepted us and forgiven us. We thank you that you love us and that you care for us. We thank you that you have given us purpose in life to live for your glory. And we thank you that we have a hope for the future. Father, I pray that you would encourage the hearts of your people. I pray that you would reassure your dear beloved people of the glorious realities of the gospel. Father, minister to every heart. We thank you for all of these things. And we pray this humbly and gratefully. In the name of Christ.